bet you're wondering what I'm going to do with those last few verses. So am I. Good to have Josh back, and and I'm the band with the wool hats. I gotta get one of those. You guys are looking good. So it's good to have you all back. Some of you got caught in the the storms out in the Mer- out in the Newfoundland and places like that. Uh, this is a fascinating song. If you have your Bible, I'd like you to open it up. Um, Actually, it's not a bad thing to kind of follow. Unless the Lord builds the house. I've been asking my, myself the question, how has my experience over the last couple of years being here, uh, dealing with choices that were made long before I arrived here, and having to figure out what this Bayview thing means and how would I have preached this passage five years ago before my experience of these last couple of years? I mean, what does it mean to depend on God? That, that seems to be the pressing question that, that kind of leaps from the pages here. What does it mean to allow God to build the house or God to be the safe place? I thought about how many various traditions we have in in Tyndale. We vary in our view of planning ahead or simply winging it, believing that this shows you're more dependent on God's work in you if you wing it rather than plan for it. I mean, I know there are traditions here where written prayer versus the extemporaneous prayer, right? Right? Uh, says something about what you think God is, whether you're allowing God to speak. How could it be a genuine prayer relying on God if it isn't spontaneous, I've heard one of the students here say to me. Whereas others wonder, how could, it, how could you be so careless by just stepping up and kind of winging it? Or why wouldn't you take some of the great prayers of long traditions in history and use them again because they speak so deeply. Here's a good one. Does good strategic planning mean that you don't trust in God to build the house? Or let's do one that is more closer to home. How about the God of the final exam? (laughs) Praying that he will show up even if you haven't studied. Have you thought about that? I've told some of you this. Uh, when I went to grad school, I, I was accepted on probation because of my first year in university where I had flunked most of my courses. And therefore, they factored into my GPA. And when I applied to Fuller Seminary, I wanted, I wanted to go there desperately. Um, they first of all turned me down, and then they accepted me on probation. And it was all to do with what my first year marks would be like uh, at the seminary. And the first course I took was Greek. Uh, Greek taught at Fuller was like someone said, an avalanche with a beach shovel, uh, because it was taught in the inductive method. And just by chance, I had all these people in my class of 15 10 of which now are are significant New Testament scholars around the world, 
Marianne Mai Thompson, Gary Burge, and they'd all done Greek before. And for some reason, they took me on as a project. Um, like they would, they would pray over me before every exam. Uh, I, I still remember the final exam. All, and I think of this now because they're, they're quite well-known New Testament scholars. And there they are laying hands on me in the final exam. The professor walks in and they're, oh, Lord, help him. <laughs> but I wonder if I hadn't studied if their prayers would have been meaningless. Uh, in those days, I don't know what we do now, but you used to have little cards on a ring, and you'd run through the, the vocabulary. You'd just kind of flip through the vocabulary. Uh, if I hadn't done that uh, on the bus going home and on the bus coming to school, uh, if I hadn't been sitting at the hamburger thing doing, looking at tenses and, and all of those things that make Greek so incredibly difficult, if I, hadn't, if I hadn't been doing word association, uh, does that mean that those prayers would have been meaningless if I hadn't done my part in the midst of it? Those are the questions that come out to me in this passage. Like, where's, where's the happy medium of understanding where the Lord is in all of this? And I think that's what this psalm cries out. It's all about perspective. As Joan said, this is a psalm of ascension, one of 15 psalms called the Songs of Ascent, beginning at Psalm 120 and going to Psalm 134. And they were, they say, psalms sung by pilgrims as they went up to the temple in Jerusalem to observe the major festivals and to worship the living God. And given that context, I find it kind of weird that Psalm 127 is in the midst of this. Because it's surprising in that it's, it's more like a song of lament. It's a song of perspective and correction. It's almost like a proverb. Uh, this psalm seems strange to me in the song of ascent. It, I, 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 the picture I had was of the caravana parade. You know, this this great celebration, you're going up to the temple, the caravan of parades going up to the temple, and then all of a sudden someone comes out with a proverb rather than the, the ones that come, blessed are those who fear the Lord, who walk in his ways. I mean, those have that sense of praise. This one has this sense of wisdom. Charles Spurgeon called this the psalm that is an observation on life, almost like a proverb it is. He called it a psalm for the builders. For you that wondered if I ever read John Calvin, I have. I have. Calvin says that this psalm, shows, this psalm shows that the order of society, both political and domestic, is maintained solely by the blessing of God and not by policies and diligent, diligence or the wisdom of people. I say that this is a psalm that speaks to the illusion of self-reliance, of self-sufficiency. 
It exposes the arrogance of people who think that if they just work harder, they can accomplish anything that is truly lasting or anything meaningful because they have all the power to do that. This strikes at that illusion. You might have the human energy and the expertise to build a house, or you might have the skill and the alertness to guard a city, but if you think that keeps you safe, that if you think that you're not vulnerable still in the midst of that, this psalm says you are in an illusion of your own making, and your arrogance is palpable. At some time, you will learn that you are not self-sufficient. Vanity, the Proverbs call it, to live with that thought. Every time I, uh, as a pastor, when I would go in to visit with someone who has just been told that they had been, they'd contracted cancer, this is the illusion that's been struck for them. Matter of fact, if you ever had a diagnosis of cancer and had to gone through that, something happens inside of you that is profoundly different. All of a sudden, you realize you no longer can be naive about your own self-sufficiency. All of a sudden, when you have been told you have cancer, all of a sudden, that naive innocence that somehow if you just work harder and you just try harder, gets destroyed. One of my closest friends, who is a workaholic, whose whole philosophy of life has been wrapped around this idea that all he has to do is work harder and it'll get better. And if it's not going well, then you just work harder. All of a sudden, in the midst of the prime of his life, a a passionate person for the poor, who's ached to get overseas every time he could, just so he could be amongst the poor. These people that he loved, all of a sudden, contracts this disease called Still's disease, which just literally handicaps him in so many ways that he said to me just the other day on the phone, my days of traveling where I want to be, he said, are gone. Doesn't matter how hard I work, doesn't matter what I do, this disease now has rendered me powerless. This psalm is a psalm of perspective. G.K. Chesterton, I don't know if any of you have read G.K. Chesterton. Anybody read G.K. Chesterton? Great. You really need to pick up uh, and read it. Chesterton is this odd, odd person in another century. Uh, An eccentric in so many ways. But if you read him, it's full of great quotes. He said that the concept of a rugged individual, the self-made person, is, is like having the same ultimate authority and worldview of a slightly sleepy businessman right after lunch. Lurching along, he says, in the fantasy that they are in control. Such a worldview, such a way of life, I want to suggest to you, is so unexciting. And it fails to do justice to some of the root experiences of why we are people of faith. 
Notably, the idea of mystery and the need for God. Notice in this passage that three times in two verses, the psalmist speaks to this idea that you are not the master of your destiny. You are a fool to think you can build a house without the Lord being a part of it. It is vain to guard a city unless the Lord is the city's keeper. Like saying you can think you are safe, but surprise, you're not. Often have you heard people say after some big violent event happens in their neighborhood, we never thought that it would happen here. We thought we'd isolated ourselves from that. How surprised they were that their illusion of safety was taken away. And then in verse 2 is, it is vain to spend all of your energies working and worrying unless you were utterly dependent on the Lord for the ultimate success. Interestingly enough, the New Testament picks this up in James. Listen to what James says. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, he says, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Isn't it interesting that James picks up that same theme? It's this call to live beyond anxiety and the illusion of self. Another great Chesterton quote. He was great on this topic. The illusion of a self-made person, he said, is a cad without a creator. I like that. You're not laughing. A cad without a creator. And then comes verse 5. And I must confess... Verse 5, I mean, I've read the commentaries. I know how it fits and all that. I still feel it's like a bump in the road on this, this psalm. It, it seems to come out of nowhere. Eugene Peterson feels that this is almost like an illustration. And there's no doubt that it was written at a time in which if you had a lot of children, you were blessed and you were somebody. And if you didn't, some of us have lived in cultures in which if you didn't have a lot of children, there was something wrong with you. If you didn't have any children, it was worse. I remember being in Kenya, and when they found out I only had one daughter, my manhood was questioned. But verse 5 indicates that in the Old Testament Israel, that somehow this quiver idea, the family's size was a sign of blessing. But more than this, I think of it in the context of how we think now. Here's, here's how I spin this in my own head, in my own experience. I have one daughter who happens to have a big quiver. She has four kids. I have four grandchildren. I have one daughter. Carl and I love this daughter with all our heart. And why were we so blessed? To have her turn out to be a person of faith, to be an incredible mother, to, to be a person of substance. When so many of my friends, also pastors, 
raise their children, maybe even, well, certainly better than I did. And their children have been a struggle their whole lives. You do the best you can as a parent. You diligently speak into their lives. You influence their lives. And you may think you're a great parent. But you better be grateful and humble. Because how it turns out, you never see it. But by the grace of God, I have the daughter that I have. That's perspective. And that's my point about this psalm today. It's all about perspective. A kind of perspective that understands that God is in control. God is out ahead. God is always before us. A perspective that creates a kind of humble sensibility that you are not as good as you think you are. You're also not as bad as you think you are. And you are, frankly, more vulnerable than you know. And for some of you who think that you're really vulnerable, you're not as vulnerable as you think you are because God is in control. But that you are not in control. I'm not saying this to scare you. But this psalm is just wanting to point us to God in the midst of a, an amazing time of renewal in the church I was pastoring in Edmonton. I was sitting with my wizened spiritual director who was a little Catholic nun. I don't know why how many of these spiritual directors are little wizened Catholic nuns, but this one was. And I was telling her how excited I was about the growth in the church, the renewal, the new birth, and all of those came. And I was just kind of saying, it's so exciting. And I'm just so excited about what my ministry is all about. And she says this. I hate that little wizened nun. <laughs> Gary, where is God in this? That's the only question she asked. Where is God in this? Oh, gee, I was so defensive. Well, it's all about God. Da, 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 da. And then, then she says, it doesn't sound. Good question. In everything you do, where's God in this? It's a lesson that we're learning in this transition to the new campus. That the best plans can go awry. That a really good strategic plan is only as good as the God who is a part of it. And that, frankly, God is way out ahead of us. And most of the time, we're catching up. And I've learned these lessons in the last year and a half. And I think this psalm points to this. Acknowledging the total dependence on God. God is out ahead. God is beside. And at times, God is behind kicking me to move me forward. The other thing is to know that I need to do the best I possibly can in terms of planning. But always be listening to the question that little nun asked me. Where's God? Where's God 
And therefore, recognizing when there are God movements, that if I'd been so caught up in my planning and my thinking about how good I'm doing, I would have missed the God moment because I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't listening for it. I wasn't, I wasn't paying attention. And then lastly, humbly acknowledging that I wouldn't have got where I was if it hadn't been for God. Acknowledging a total dependence on God. He's out ahead. Doing my best in terms of planning. In your context, it might be studying. Listening. Those, those people in my Greek class held me accountable in ways I'd never thought of. They were, God, they were God's person for me at that particular time. And recognizing that, that they're a gift to me from God. And humbly acknowledging at the end that it is him who made all things possible. Let's pray. For the gift of perspective and for the hope that you are ahead of us, for the gift of diligence while at the same time listening for you. We're grateful. Amen.